0: Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.
1: Today, expert knowledge is so highly valued that we learn to lead first as the expert whose mastery of the details helps teams solve problems. Eventually, as your leadership role expands, expert leaders find themselves in a role where others know more. Details are no longer so accessible, and decisions are made without a full understanding. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. It's time to find out how to make the transformation smooth and flawless. Now, here is Dr. Wanda Wallace.
2: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace, and today we're going to talk about landing that dream job, whether that's inside your current company or it's in a completely different company. It's those kind of roles where you know it's ideal for you, it would be a great next step in your career. Now, how do you make sure you get the job? From impressing the interviewers to negotiating the offer, and that includes the salary, and then finally, what are the biggest mistakes that people make so you can avoid all of them? My guest today is Kate Grusing. Kate is founder and managing director at Sapphire Partners. They're an executive search specialty company, and they seek talent for executive positions and for board appointments. Kate has a fabulous track record and an even better network. So, Kate, welcome to the show. Thank you for
3: having me, Wanda.
2: Well, it's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. So, Kate, your job is to interview people every day, multiple times a day, and to position them in the right positions. So, let's start to talk about the interview process. And the first thing I want to say is, so what should people be prepared for in an interview? When you're, you know, you're going in for that ideal job interview, it's the first one. What should you prepare for? Well,
3: it, it varies on the stage of an individual's career and the stage of the selection process. But often, if an individual has applied to something they may have seen on a company's website, or maybe to a headhunter or an executive search consultant initially, they will have a basic understanding of, well, what is the job title? Who does it report to? And where does it fit in the hierarchy of that company? And I think that number one tip I would give anyone, and I probably have eight different steps I'd suggest, would be do your homework. Don't wing it. So whether you're um, having a Skype interview as your first interview, which it might be if it's on the other side of the world, or um, an in-person interview. Really understand what is the role about? What's the company like? And where are your qualifications a strong fit? So that that homework, I'd say, is that the number one thing before I um, get to any of the further
2: points. So how do you find that out? I mean, I have a job description, let's say, from some posting somewhere. And I can go to the company's webpage, but often those don't give me anything that's enormously useful to prepare for an interview. So, you know, do you have a bag of tricks, places you go?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I would absolutely recommend scouring the company's website. Look at if they might have other roles posted. Look at the backgrounds of people in the division or the particular geography that you're looking to apply for. Go on websites of their competitors and see how their competitors describe similar roles. And by all means, you know, use a basic tool like LinkedIn. See what you can learn about the individuals at the company currently and where they came from. And that will help give you a, a good picture of how your skills fit with that opportunity. But there are also websites such as Glassdoor where you can see what past employees or current employees are saying about the company.
2: Yeah, I know a lot of people who go to Glassdoor fairly immediately to learn about the company culture because you get a lot of of information, pro and con, accurate and inaccurate. You get a lot of information. So you say the number one thing to do is to do your homework, and that's both about the company, about the role, as well as about the people that you're going to be meeting or talking with. Okay, so what's your second tip? My second tip is to practice. So for many professionals, they
3: have not had a lot of interviews, depending on if they've been at one company for a very long time. You don't want that dream job interview to be the first interview you've had in 10 years. So find an individual, whether it could be a friend or a partner or a coach, that you could practice with so that... Um, you are selling yourself and describing yourself in a way that feels very natural. I'm not a big believer in practice makes perfect.
2: So you mock interviews, then basically, is what you're saying. OK. All right, so now that ask the question, though, when I'm doing the interview, how much should I take control of the interview, or do I let the interviewer take control? Oh, that's such a good question.
3: Well, the, the interviewer should be driving the interview. And I think there's nothing worse for an interviewer if the person you're interviewing tries to grab the steering wheel from you. Now, it may be that the interviewer spent 45 minutes just talking about themselves and the role. In that situation, then you do need to take control and say, I'm I'm worried I haven't had enough of an opportunity to talk about my background and why I'm so excited about this role. But I think it is a mistake to take control too early and not to have a chance to let the interviewer drive the car.
2: Okay. So I have to follow the interviewer's lead wherever that goes. If we're getting towards the last 50, 20, 25 minutes, then it's okay to take control. All right, so I've got to do my homework. I practice the, so that it feels natural for me. Uh, what's the third tip?
3: So I think having a plan. Think about what are the one or two things I need to get across. In this interview, whether the interview is 30 minutes or two hours, and make sure that even if it's in the last 60 seconds, you describe both why you're good for the role and why you're excited. Those are the two things that interviewer needs to go away from that meeting list.
2: Okay, so why I'm good for the role and why I'm excited. So I've got to convey some passion, some enthusiasm, genuinely, obviously. And I have to have my plan for the one or two things that I want to say. I like that. Okay, I can't resist. What's your fourth tip?
3: It's to be a really good listener. So if that interviewer has spent the first 20 or 40 minutes talking about themselves or the role or the company, I think it's a good idea to take notes. It's a good idea to have eye contact. Don't interrupt all the time. Don't try to take control. Listen, they're giving you clues. They're there because they want to hopefully find the perfect candidate for their role. Now, if in, I'm sorry. If this, an interviewee is too much in cell mode, the interviewee may be um, describing themselves too much and not listening enough.
2: Okay. So we always think we're supposed to go in and sell ourselves, but that may not be the most immediate thing you need to do. Okay? Um, I know that often when I'm trying to pitch for a new client, I like to listen to them talk about what their problems are, what the issues are, just getting them talking for a while, and then I like to use their language to sell my ideas. So I'll pick up a phrase from them. I'll pick up their turn of expressions they capture the same idea, it's just their language instead of mine. Do you recommend doing that as an interviewee?
3: Oh, I think it's a great thing to do. And much as even you know, your, your body language, you should think about, should you mirror the body language of the person you're sitting across from or next to? But using the terminology that they drop into the conversation um, is a fantastic suggestion if it feels natural and authentic to you
2: and you understand it. Okay, so do you mirror the body language of the person who's sitting across from you? If it feels comfortable,
3: uh, I would always recommend that. It helps you establish a rapport. Now, you need to do it in a sensitive way, but it's, again, part of picking up all of the signals going on in that interview.
2: Okay. Now, lots of people have very sophisticated uh, theories about why interviewers do what they do. So I can just imagine people are sitting there thinking, they're probably doing some goofy body language just to see if I will follow what they're doing and mimic. Do you believe interviewers are kind of that planful or not?
3: No, I think most interviewers have probably rushed from a meeting or rushed from a conference call. They've only just picked up your CV. They may not have had a proper briefing before, and they are um, immersed in seeing you in front of them and often making it up while they go. So it is unusual for an interviewer to have a lot of experience interviewing and In general, I think you should assume the person sitting across the table from you really wants to have a dialogue and a discussion and get to the bottom of what makes you tick.
2: Okay. All right, so don't assume sabotage theory. Assume stress and no prep time. That's not bad advice, any Okay, so we've got four of your eight. Do your homework, practice so that it feels natural, have a plan with the one or two things you want to be sure to get across, why you're good for the role, why you're excited, be a really good listener, don't try to take control too early in the interview. What's number five?
3: Take your time. Don't be in a rush. Don't try and, you know, Say everything in the first five minutes. And it's only natural when you're nervous to talk fast. Slow yourself down. Don't be afraid to say, you know, I need 30 seconds to think about an answer to that question.
2: Okay. So a short pause to think is not a bad thing. Okay, good. I always think you're supposed to have know all the answers immediately when you walk in, off the tip of your tongue. But okay, not necessarily. Right, so, any tips, Kate? We can say th- take your time forever, but you know when you're nervous, that's you just can't, and you actually speed up out of nervousness. Any advice for people how to make sure you slow it down? I'm a big
3: believer in taking a
2: deep breath and you
3: know pausing to put your Self in the shoes of the interviewer across the table from you and I think it's much better to be quite thoughtful and take two minutes to answer a question rather than rush an answer in 30 seconds
2: okay fair enough I read somewhere that we hear at one third the pace at which we speak and that's hear and process I don't know how accurate that fact is but that's what I read and that would imply that if I want my interviewer to actually remember what I said, I better slow it way down so they have time to think about it. Okay, so that was number five. Take your time. What about your sixth tip? Ask questions. There's uh-huh. nothing
3: more infuriating to the interviewer or to me as a headhunter if at the end of the time together they pause and say, well, do you have any questions for me? If the person sitting across the table has no questions, that conveys a terrible message. Is it, were you lazy? Were you disorganized? Are you disinterested? It's always really important to have questions. And in an ideal world, you would have written them down in advance. Now, that's not to say you should go through a list of 20 questions either, but asking questions is really important to showing you're engaged and you've done your homework.
2: Now, there's a fine line between this. I imagine most people interviewing for a job have a 1,000 specific questions about the role and the tactics and so on. So that can get it overwhelming. Do you have a favorite set of questions you think people should be thinking about or categories they should be thinking about to ask questions on? It's hard
3: to generalize. I think it really depends on who the person is sitting across the table from you. And if you're, say, interviewing for a chief marketing officer role, the kind of questions you're going to ask the CEO you're reporting to should be different than the questions you might ask the sales director or the HR director. But certainly people like to talk about themselves. And a a very reasonable question is, you know, what do you love about working at this company? And and I think candidates should also be comfortable asking the same question to multiple people and then comparing the answers. Mm -hmm.
2: I like that one. What do you love about working at this company? That's an easy one. And certainly would give you lots of insights about the culture and about the dynamics and about the commitment. All right, fine. Okay, so number six is ask questions. What's number seven?
3: At the very end of an interview, don't hesitate to ask for feedback. And say, you know, really appreciate the 45 minutes we've just had together. Is there anything that I could have covered better? Or is there anything you think that I didn't fully answer? Were there any areas that we didn't touch on? You'd be amazed at how you can often get you know, what, what the big unanswered
2: question is from an interviewer
3: if you give them that sort of opportunity.
2: And then do you respond to that if you realize you've left something out? Or do you just say thank you and let it go?
3: Oh, you absolutely respond. It, it's an invitation for you to kind of cross the T or dot the I. And convince them that you do have the skill or the experience. And you know, if they could give you five more minutes, you would like to give them the evidence
2: and the track record. Okay. And it's a chance to repeat your one or two things as sort of a summary statement as well. Okay. I know when I'm preparing for an interview, let's say with the press, um my publicist will ensure that I have my one or two talking points and I have my examples ready at hand and I've kind of thought through them and I, you know, not that I have to look at a piece of paper, but I'm just ready to speak. And then will remind me to reiterate those points throughout that interview. Do you do the same thing when you're interviewing for a job or is that overkill?
3: No, I think that's, it's very similar. Perhaps the one exception is A good interviewer will try and quiz the candidate in front of them and continually ask for evidence and examples. So it's important that you have a variety of evidence and examples and case studies that you can talk through, and you're not always going back to one particular client or or prior role.
2: Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. All right, so now there's a lot written. I'm going to shift. Give me your eighth tip, excuse me, before we go there, and then I'm going to shift gears.
3: Thank you. And the eighth tip is the most superficial, but it's not to be underestimated, and it is how important it is to look the part. So if what comes out of your mouth is fantastic, but you have circles under the eyes, or you're dressed inappropriately, or you haven't had a haircut in six months, then, unfortunately, appearances make a very strong first impression. So do your homework in advance what do people at that particular company tend to wear to work for example
2: okay so I don't always go to an interview in a suit if the company is not a suit kind of place correct okay so I'm matching their culture all right fair enough Quickly, Kate, um, there's a lot on the Internet about people asking really difficult or the favorite interview questions or the hardest interview question I've ever heard. You know, just give us a couple of your most difficult, most challenging interview questions. Wow. A lot
3: of the strategy consulting firms and some of the technology firms throw real mind-bender questions at Canvas. So, can you tell me how much orange juice was consumed in Germany in 2015? So, that would be a not an unusual question that I've heard a very analytically oriented company asking a candidate. Well, there isn't a right or wrong answer. They don't expect a candidate to know how many cubic liters of orange juice. They're looking for your thought process. So I would, it's a great example of putting one of my tips into practice, which is take your time. Don't feel you have to rush and, you know, come up with an answer, but be quite methodical and thoughtful and speak out loud. Those zinger questions, I believe, are increasingly common. uh, We hear from candidates who we have met.
2: Okay. Fabulous. All right. And also there's a whole, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of places to go to look for interview questions in your practice phase. All right. What about one last thing, Kate? What about follow-up? What do I do as follow-up after the interview? I mean, there's the thank you note. Yes. Anything else?
3: I think a thank you note or an email is a really nice touch. Now, typically the decision probably is made before your thank you note or your email arrives, but it's a great example of you want someone to remember you. And it should be short, it should be sweet, and it should t- touch on anything that might have come up. If you had talked about a particular newspaper article or a piece of research, something that can remind the individual of what you talked about. It doesn't need to be half a page. It could be literally three sentences,
2: okay. but and I love this. I keep saying one more question, and then one more question I have to ask you. So one more, and I really will stop for a break after this one. Lots of people talk about the need to to uh, do something that is unusual, like in your appearance, to wear an unusual color, to wear an unusual tie, an unusual brooch, uh, something unusual so you're memorable, especially when you're in part of an interview where a whole bunch of people are getting interviewed in a day. Does that work or not work?
3: I think... You need to do what feels authentic to you. And if you're the sort of person who always wears black and that's what you feel most comfortable in, then you should wear black. Looking the part is very important, but I don't think um, finding something particularly unusual is anything I would recommend to someone who already wasn't very comfortable doing that. Okay,
2: fabulous. All right, great. With me today is Kate Grusing. Kate is the founder, one of the founders and managing director of Sapphire Partners, an executive search specialist uh, looking for talented executive positions and at board appointments. We've been talking about how to land that dream job, interviewing first, and there are Kate has eight points, fabulous eight points. Um, We're going to take a break right now, and when we come back, I want to talk about negotiating the offer, particularly the salary. We'll be right back.
4: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
1: If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc.,
4: helping organizations get it and keep it.
2: Kate is founder and managing director at Sapphire Partners, an executive search specialty company that looks for talent in executive positions and at board appointments. We've just been talking about how to do interviews, and Kate has eight kind of tips for how to do the interview. One is do your homework. Two is to make sure you practice before the interview. Three is to plan what's the one or two things you want to say. Four is to be a good listener. Let the interviewer drive the conversation for the most part. Five is take your time. Slow down. Six is be prepared to ask questions. Don't come in without any questions at all. Make them thoughtful. Seven is ask for feedback at the end on anything you missed or anything you could have covered better. And number eight has to do with looking the part. Okay, Kate. So let us hope that your interview advice has actually worked really, really, really well. And now I have the offer. So let's talk about negotiating the offer. Any advice on what I can do there?
3: Negotiating is um, an incredibly complex subject, and books have been written on this. I have seen job offers completely go off the rails with bad negotiations, and I've also seen job offers get cemented, and individuals far exceed their expectations with negotiations. I have a few tips I will share, but as I said, if um, we had more time, I'd probably go through, I think, that 15 tips I've seen over my years. I'm probably going to concentrate on six
2: in the okay. interest of time. All right, fabulous. Tell us your tips. What's the first one? First and foremost is
3: getting to a strong likability. The person who you're going to be negotiating with is probably either your future boss or your future HR director, and it's really important that they like you after the negotiation's over. So, it's clearly an important skill in most senior jobs to be a good negotiator, but having that personal rapport is absolutely vital if you're going to be successful. So that's a bit, the first point by far. Don't forget staying likable.
2: That's interesting. I can't tell you how many times I hear after they have hired somebody, people say, I'm not so sure we made a good decision. And it has mm. to do with how the negotiation went. So I can absolutely see that one. All right, so I've got to make sure people like me. The person I'm negotiating with needs to like me after the fact because I'm going to have to work with them. Right, what's the second tip?
3: And it, it, I think it builds on that. It's helping the individual you're negotiating with understand why you deserve what you're requesting. So as the candidate about to accept an offer, you need to be able to demonstrate what your prior remuneration was, why you might need a particular cost of living allowance or a moving allowance, and related to that is, what are the benchmarks? So if everyone in your peer group or in your competitors are earning at a certain level, those are really invalid data points for why you are requesting the compensation you are.
2: Okay. Now, how do I find that out? What's the peer benchmark? What's your favorite way of figuring out where I should sit relative to others? There,
3: I'm afraid there is no easy answer. <laughs> So certainly um, the starting point of what your current remuneration was, you need to have that information in a form that you can share with the HR team at your new potential employer. And if you have interviewed for other roles, you can talk about what you were offered and other opportunities. And likewise, if you've done your homework and seen other roles, um, advertised or that you're familiar with because there might be good external data you can talk about. Well, I saw that your competitor um, advertised a role at this salary. Why is your company you know above or below it? But okay. that is um, not an area that is easy to research. I will grant you that.
2: Okay. All right. So, but it is uh, come in prepared with the facts. So I can't pretend that my salary is higher than it actually is because I'm going to have to be show it at some point, and then that isn't very good. And then I am looking at other offers that are out there, have been in the last six months, other uh, interviews that I've done recently, and what that offer was, other roles at comparable companies, and how they're advertised. So it's just a matter of doing my homework, I guess is fair. Okay. All right, so i got to make sure the negotiator likes me at the end of the day. I have to help the negotiator with some facts or figures that make it easy for them to go back and lobby on my behalf, so like my prior salary and so forth. Mm -hmm. What's your third tip?
3: Understanding the person across the table. So if it's an individual who has moved companies many times, then they're probably going to be a pretty savvy negotiator, and their salary will probably be at market rate. If the person you're negotiating across the table has been at the company their entire career, they may be less of a good negotiator. Their own salary may be below market. And, you know, for example, if it's an HR director, HR is often a skill set that is paid less than the, their peers within a company on an executive committee, for example, So understanding the position of the person across the table. Have they maybe made a job offer a few times previously to others for the role you're now negotiating? And have those offers been turned down?
2: Okay. So. And again, that's about doing my homework, to knowing how long has the job been open and who might they have talked to before and what might have been the sticking points and so on, as much as I can find it out. Often that's through your contacts and network. And fair point, you know, whatever I'm asking for, how is how comfortable is that person with um, either negotiating or with their own salary? Okay, so that's number three. What's number four?
3: Negotiating it in a whole package. So let's say you're negotiating um, being bought out of some stock. Uh, you're negotiating what title you might be brought in. And negotiating what your base salary is. Please don't do those one at a time. Please talk about them in terms of the three areas that are important to you as the candidate. So, by negotiating them simultaneously, you and the person across the table will be able to make certain trade offs. It will be a nightmare if you're the hiring manager. And you go to bat for a candidate and you get them the title that they want, only for the candidate to say, oh, great, thank you. Oh, by the way, I wanted to also talk to you about the base salary. That would drive me around the bend if I'm also the HR director who's had to go get internal approvals and possibly talk to a remuneration committee. And it, it feels like if you're on the side of the potential employer, as a candidate, maybe you've been
2: um, moving the goalposts. Yeah. Yeah. I certainly hear that all the time from internal people is, um, I had to do, you go through so many hoops to get this first thing cleared for you. Not that it was that difficult to do, but they're just hoops to clear through. And then you want me to go do it again. Um, and why didn't you tell me? And sometimes I could, if you had known that was mattering to you, I could have traded off this in order to get more of that for you, but you didn't give me that option. You just keep adding it on and piling it on. All right, so that's number three. Negotiate the whole package, not a piecemeal. What's number five?
3: Maintaining a sense of perspective. So if the employer is a bit off in base salary, for example, do you really have everything else you need? Are you... Um, being sufficiently flexible, and taking a long enough term perspective.
2: Okay. Now, I have heard um, the following said in some markets of some companies, is that you lure somebody in with a really good base salary a very competitive base salary a big bump up from where they are at the moment in time and slightly higher than their peers are being paid inside the market at that inside the company at that moment in time only to hold their salary then fairly steady over the next 2 to 3 years while other people catch up with them do you is that a common thing that happens or not
3: that is a common thing that happens
2: and you know,
3: companies care a lot about fairness and ensuring that people at a certain title level or experience level are within a, a band. And you know, because in most companies there is very little transparency, it's important that you, as a hiring manager, are as fair as possible. Now, you know, if there's a skill set you really want to bring into the company, you you often have to convince that candidate to take a risk, to leave their company, to, you know, you're trying to entice them to the job that um, is in front of them. So the risk is much greater to the candidate than it is to the company.
0: Okay. All right. So once you're
3: at a company, if you're a new hire, clearly you have less leverage in negotiating room than before you agreed to join.
2: Right. Okay, so a perspective, both now and long-term and the trade-off of everything. All right, that was number five. And what's your final number six point about negotiating? Remember that
3: the person that you're negotiating with is not out to get you. They really want you to join. They want you to be excited and inspired and have enough runway, have enough opportunity for future salary increases or future promotions. And, you know, it's, it's not a zero... Some game. They really are eager to have you be their most successful new hire ever.
2: Okay, now Kate, there's some research on the fact that women in particular don't negotiate salary, and men do tend to negotiate salary. I think tend to is the right word. Do you find that that's the case, that women are a little hesitant to talk about the money? I'm afraid that is the case. Women
3: often perceive it could be seen as a bit grubby or that it somehow takes away from the other factors if the woman is looking at the entirety of the opportunity. And I do think women can benefit from being a bit more demanding and holding out and insisting on a, a pay rise to the extent that their male peers are much more comfortable with.
2: Okay, but how do I know I'm not going to tip over in that being too demanding category where I fall into the being obnoxious and people are rolling their eyes of why are we talking to her about this role?
3: I think it goes back to the, the first two points.
2: You know, being
3: likable and showing what your benchmarks are, explaining why you're making the request that you are. So it doesn't seem like you're making an outrageous request.
2: Right. And you've
3: done your benchmarking versus your peers or your competitors.
2: Okay. I think that makes a ton of sense, Kate, um, that you don't want to be afraid to ask, but if you put the first two principles in in place so that people, you leave the negotiator feeling that they enjoy having you around, they're glad they made that hire, Mm -hmm. and you've done your homework to know your benchmarks, then don't be afraid to ask for a bit more. I had one client who got so frustrated with women in his organization not negotiating, not talking about money in any form that he started publishing or wanted to publish um, the salary bands for particular grade jobs. Not that I'm going to give individual, but so that you know at this mm-hmm. grade level, the band within my group is X, Y, and Z. and um, You can figure out pretty quickly where you stand. I think that's incredibly bold. Not everybody's willing to do this. Before we take a break, I have one last piece about negotiation. So there's a lot going on at the moment about moving relocation. And I frequently hear um, people say, the job is in another city, and are you willing to relocate to another city? And then there's the question of, well, am I going to really relocate or not? And especially, am I going to have family follow me? So I find, you know, it gets very tricky here. When do you say yes, no? What is yes? What is no? Um, I know one person that I worked closely with who was negotiating this and basically said, I'm unwilling to move my family, but I will personally, you know, buy an apartment in the particular city, make an investment in the city, and I'll have a space that my family can join me when it's needed so that they're there and part of the community. What's your advice on when to negotiate this relocation thing?
3: As I said, one has the greatest leverage at the point of joining a company. And if I'm the hiring manager, I want to do everything in my power to make you successful. And being on the ground and having your loved ones as near to you as possible is going to help you be more successful. Now, the more senior the role, the more likely it is there'll be a lot of travel involved, and you know it may be an international assignment, but as a hiring manager, you don't want to put too much pressure on the individual. Hire. And I do think it can de-risk it for the new hire to say, you know, "This opportunity to relocate your family will be available for the next six, twelve, eighteen months." So we don't want to rush you to take the people out of schools or to think about how it might disrupt your partner's uh, own career. But we want you to hit the ground running and you know understand this business, this culture, your team, and the, the closer you are to where the majority of your colleagues are, the more likely you are to be successful.
2: Okay. All right, Kate, we're going to take a break again. Some fabulous tips in here about negotiating not just salary, but the entire offer. And if I just run through Kate's six tips again, they are make sure that whatever you do in the negotiation, you leave the person across the table from you still liking you and happy that you're joining their group internally or externally Two. Help the negotiator understand why you're asking for what you're asking. So have proof points, evidence, and so on that can help them go to bat for you. Three, try to understand the person across the table. What are they like? Where, how many times have they done this? How good are they at this? And have some little empathy. Fourth is negotiate the whole package at one time, not in a piecemeal. Five is a bit of perspective On balance, is it okay even if one part is out a bit here or there? And then six, the company or the group that is hiring you is not out to get you. They want you to be excited. They want you to come and join them. They want you to hit the ground running. So don't see sabotage at every corner. Fabulous tips, Kate. All right, so when we come back, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about the biggest mistakes Kate sees people make in this whole process. So join us then to figure out what not to do. We'll be right back.
4: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
1: If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc.,
4: helping organizations
1: get it and keep it.
2: With me today is Kate Grusing. Kate is partner and managing, excuse me, founder and managing director for Sapphire Partners, an executive search business that specializes in placing talent in executive positions and in board positions. We've been talking about Kate's advice for preparing for an interview for your dream job and also her advice about how to negotiate the package, including the salary at this point, what I want to do is turn to the biggest mistakes that you see. So, Kate, you must see hundreds of them, places where a great offer, a great opportunity just derails. What are your biggest mistakes? And more importantly, how do we avoid those? Thanks, Wanda.
3: I think the first and by far the most important one is not burning bridges. When you leave a job for whatever reason, Do your best to be a good leaver, even if you have to bite your lip. The people that you're leaving behind, even if you've been made redundant or if you decided to leave, could be future colleagues, clients, or references. Do your best to leave on as professional and
2: respectful a
3: footing as possible.
2: Okay. All right. So do you have a story about somebody who's been burning bridges Give me an example of what oh. worst of those is about. Uh, it, uh,
3: it is a very small world,
2: and I could give you
3: countless examples of individuals who left their companies you know, sending that email they shouldn't have sent, um, wishing their colleagues well with a, a terrible amount of irony or cynicism, only to find a, a very short period of time. their next future boss or their next future client was indeed the individual that they might have sent the mental to. I think men and women often um, underestimate how making even a a parting comment can come back to bite them if they're not careful. I'd like to go on to, I think, the second mistake, which is, I, I see happening almost as often. And it's switching jobs too often. Good. So as a search consultant, the number one red flag I see, if I'm looking at someone's CV or LinkedIn profile, is what have they moved so often? And you know, very often there can be good reasons, whether it's um, you know, companies being acquired or divisions being restructured, but switching jobs too often because you might be chasing a big promotion or a bigger salary, um, it is a huge red flag to any future employer that perhaps you get bored too quickly, perhaps you don't stick around, or that you know, perhaps no one likes you.
2: Okay. So what's too often, Kate? I mean, a lot of people will move every two to three years and think that that's a good thing. Is that too frequent?
3: The minimum I look for someone to stay in a role without getting suspicious
2: is two years.
3: But if okay. someone has moved religiously every two to three years over the course of a long career, I, I will definitely worry, do they have the same power? And I would want to drill into what was behind each of those moves. Now, certainly the younger generation is moving more often. And there are absolutely sectors where regular movement is more common. But that is the exception. If I'm an employer looking to hire someone, I want to think that time I'm investing in hiring them and the money, if I'm using a search firm, is going to be well spent. In in an idea world, that candidates can stay three to five years.
2: Okay. So three—that's not it. so. at least have, even if you've moved, I know I've said to people, you've had two job moves quickly, even within the same company, this next one you have to stay. You just can't have a third one there that's a quick move or else it looks bad. Okay, so we don't burn bridges. We don't want to switch too often. What other mistakes do you see people make?
3: It's the flip side, which is staying in the same job or same company for too long. Now, if you're being challenged and recognized and well, well-rewarded, I'm all for staying. And the company that knows you best is the one that's most likely to make a bet on you. But it is all too frequent where one can get in a rut or plateau or, I, I, it goes with the wonderful name of your radio show, get stuck in their comfort zone. So I I worry a lot if someone's been at one company too long. Are they really going to be able to transplant and reinvent themselves at a new firm?
2: Okay. So and presumably that is more from your point of view of a headhunter of can they move if they've been 25 years in only one firm. But equally, when you're looking at a candidate either internally or externally, you want to see somebody who hasn't been in the same role for years years and years and years and years that had a lot of growth or a lot of change or a lot of variety. Okay. Fair enough, um, which any other mistakes do you see people make? Yes, and I, I do see this
3: often with um, individuals who might be going through particular life challenges so it's avoiding challenges and I'm a big believer in the message for men and women from Cheryl Sandberg's book that it's important that you lean into your career and that you seek new challenges and you seek professional development. This is a very dynamic world of work we are living in. You can't assume your boss or HR is going to manage your career. So it's the um, I, avoiding challenges is something that a lot of women for example start to do when they're in their mid to late 30s when they're thinking about you know, might I start a family. Um, and, and likewise you know, for Increasingly, younger men are thinking about that too. But I think it can be a, a death knell for a career. You need to be um, expanding your horizons and seeking to broaden your skill set.
2: Okay. So, now is it okay, Kate, in your view? Let's say I do have a young family and I want to take two to three years to kind of take my gas a little foot a little bit off the gas pedal, so long as I put it back on at a future point. Is that okay or is that going to show up badly?
3: It's absolutely okay. Careers are more like marathons than sprints. And it's important that you make sure that your work fits your life. And we are all hopefully going to be working well into our 60s or 70s or 80s. But you have to have balance in your life uh, professionally and personally so of, of course it's okay and if you decide you want to work part-time for a while or take a sabbatical or you know possibly take an assignment in another country those are all good things as you reflect on what it is that is going to make you happy and a better understanding of what makes you happy is going to make you
2: more successful professionally okay All right. Fair enough. Um, Before we close, Kate, I have to ask you about LinkedIn because I'm assuming that one of the biggest mistakes you see happening has to do with social media. So what's your advice on how to use LinkedIn, Facebook, social media, any of those sorts? And let's start with LinkedIn. What's your advice there?
3: I think LinkedIn is a very good way for any serious professional to show off their basic capabilities. What are the companies you've worked at? What are the main achievements you've had? Where did you go to university? It should be a billboard of public information that helps a potential recruiter or search consultant or future employer find out the basics about you and whether they should pick up the phone or get in touch.
2: Okay. Now, um, I see lots of people who will only put the tagline of their company. You know, I work at, X company no photo, name, that's it. It leaves me with a bad feeling, but what's your sense?
3: I think it's a missed opportunity. People don't know you unless you let them see you. Now, I understand a number of the senior professionals we meet with have considerations over privacy, and certainly the more senior an individual gets. If you're a CEO, you may want to have a, a very short profile, and you may not want to accept requests from everyone who links into you. That is completely understandable. But for individuals who are building their career, certainly in their 20s and 30s and 40s, I think LinkedIn is a very valuable professional tool not to be underestimated.
2: I have watched a number of male colleagues go through LinkedIn profiles as a screen before they speak to someone, not for even for a job interview, just to talk to them uh, about anything. And it's a bit scary how they read that profile and come to a conclusion before they've ever met you of what you're like as an individual. And it's based on the photo, it's based on the job description, it's based on the job titles, it's based on the movement, all the stuff that we've just been talking about. So important stuff to get right, I think. Um, Kate... 30 seconds left. Any one single piece of advice you'd like to leave with people?
3: I think professionals who are ambitious need to realize that it takes more than talent. And it goes without saying that the employer or the headhunter wants to find really bright, talented people. But you you need that extra something. And looking the part is part of it. Having a good network is part of it. Being able to be found on something like LinkedIn is part of it. So it takes more than talent
2: would be my summary words. Oh, Fair I love that. takes more than talent. All right, fabulous. Kate Grusing is my guest today. Kate is founder and managing director at Sapphire Partners, a search firm that specializes in executive positions and board positions. Kate, as I look over the day, I think there are four things that just really strike home to me as kind of an underpinning. One is do your homework, do your homework, do your homework. Um, Two is make sure you're listening carefully. Three is asking the right questions. And four is making sure that the people that you're talking to, negotiating with, interviewing with, like you at the end of the process. Maybe not love you, but at least like you. They're glad they met you. Kate, thanks for being with us today. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me, Wanda. It's a pleasure. Next week, we'll have Judith Pearl, and we're going to be talking about networks but networks and their impact on innovation in particular. So join us then.
1: Thank you again for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Take charge this week.